That is probably just Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by trying to read an analog clock. Can you guys, did you guys grow up in the era of reading analog clocks? Yeah. (laughs) As did I, and I can't do it. Seriously? I have completely lost the ability, and they barely teach it in schools anymore. Chris is now reading his watch. How's How's your penmanship? Oh, awful! Do you know what? It's awful. It was. I have an iWatch with which has an analog uh, version. You do, and you can read it. Yeah, yeah. It takes me. It takes me forever. Four forty. Um, my penmanship was terrible. It was. A, it was a, always a, a source of tension in my household when I would come home with my terrible penmanship grades. My daughter inherited my terrible penmanship, and she goes to school, and they say, "Eh." People type now. Nobody uses penmanship. It's so true. And she's I'm destined so, to be a doctor. I'm so happy for her. That's all I can say. Anyway, for those of you who don't know, I am Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health here with Chris Gill. Hello. And Don Thea Hi, yeah. in the Department of Global Health. What do you think about spelling? Oh, also terrible at it. Like ichthyosis. I mean, does this matter that we can spell that or not anymore? No, because spell checker will sort that out for you hmm. and change it to something else. Right. So... Anyway, ickiness. Ickiness. Anyway, we are here as usual in the Boston University Godly Studio. So, guys, now that summer is over, have you guys uh, probably don't have to do nearly as much back-to-school shopping as I do? You guys do a lot of back-to-school shopping? You know, I did, but thank God that's over because now I'm back to my one true passion in life, the only thing that satisfies me, which is spending my hours, all waking hours, on the Population Health Exchange website, which I do now 14 hours a day. Wow, because, see, I was going to recommend a I've great... stopped sleeping. I was going to recommend a great website for back-to-school shopping. <laughs> it's amazing. Which is the Population Health Exchange There's website. There's so much you can learn on that website, You Matt. can get you all, be surprised. Your, all your back-to-school things that you need, like, like there are classes on there you can sign up for. There are photographs there of incredibly handsome professors. But videos. you can't get number two pencils. Uh, can we work on that? Is there a way to get those up there? We'll get some. We'll get some and up protractors. there. Protractors. I want to be able to get protractors mm-hmm. and compasses. What else, what else do you? What else do you get at back to school? I don't know. You can't get your back to school clothing. That's Colored for sure. Pens. Unless we have population health exchange sweatshirts and t-shirts. We Folios? need a line of clothing. Folios, mugs. We need a line of clothing. We need, I mean, we got mugs. How about um, little shooter shots? <laughs> no, public health. We don't do that. Sorry. Oh, Chris had to go there. So no, anyway, no. This, is, on. this is the Boston University School of Public Health Resource <laughs> Hub for lifelong learning. You should really check it out at www.pophealthex.org. And as a reminder, if you could uh, all go out and give us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it is that you use. And in particular, we were hoping that uh, people could let us know if any of you out there are listening, use this podcast in courses that you teach in any way. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what it is you're using these, the podcast for, or if you use it in some other creative way that we would uh, be interested in knowing about, it'd be great to hear from you. Maybe people are using it as sort of a whisper podcast, the kind of podcast people listen to and go to sleep. So night. I'd be curious to know that actually. How many people <laughs> listen to the podcast? Because I listen to podcasts every night as I go to sleep and I find my, so we have a rule in our, I have a rule in our house, which is you cannot put on anything to go to sleep to that is interesting because then I stay awake. So it's got to be, you know, something short segments, not very interesting, and I'm out. You should try melatonin. Really? Tell me more about melatonin. I will in a minute. Because that's interesting because today, let's move on to the show. In our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to talk about a study of the effect of melatonin on sleep. What a coincidence that you raised that, Don. <laughs> then in our second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we are going to talk about a paper which critiques the field of nutritional epidemiology and has gotten a lot of press and something that we know Chris loves to talk about. I'm hungry for this one. Oh. <laughs> Let's just pause to acknowledge how bad that was. You know, I was thinking we could, in, in lieu of ratings, we could, we could like issue a challenge. We could do the, I have it here, the five-star, uh, excuse me, the, the five-star 
It can't uh, make the handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> the five-star review haiku big challenge um, contest is the best of fun, and that is actually a haiku. So you, you... Can you make that into an acronym? <laughs> okay. And you should give us a five-star rating. That's the point of the haiku. So you, you are... have to write your rating as a haiku. So okay. everyone who, who gives us a rating... In should... haiku form... What do they get? Us... What do we give them? What, do we, what can we give anyone who would write a haiku... As a review, as a review on iTunes, a shout out in the next podcast. Number two pencils. <laughs> we don't have like a mug we could give them, or a, we could. All right, a mug. We could we could personalize it by pre nibbling them. We will. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> I think Dick, I, don't like do no. I don't want to do no. that. I don't want to do that. Infectious disease. We'll give risk. you a mug. Yeah, if point. anyone, the first person who writes a haiku on iTunes. We will send you a mug that Chris has not used. Uh, Chris, I think it's time for you to wait in the car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So now, on to the show. Oh, wait. I didn't even say And then we have our third segment, which is our Amazing Amusing, in which we will get on to wacky, some of the things that make us laugh, or we will find some uh, something that, that uh, Chris will decide is a, a topic that is not good enough, and then he'll switch topics in the middle. Anyway. <laughs> So let's get into our segment one, which we are going to get into an article that looks at the effect of melatonin on sleep in people with something called delayed sleep-wake phase disorder. It was published in PLOS Medicine, which is a journal I actually I quite enjoy. Uh, the first author was Tracy Sletton of Monash Institute of Cognitive and Clinical Neurosciences in Victoria, Australia. And the study was entitled Efficacy of Melatonin with Behavioral Sleep-Wake Scheduling, for Delayed Sleep-Wake Phase Disorder, a Double-Blind Randomized Clinical Trial. A lot of words in there. Jeez. All the words. All the best words. All <laughs> the best words. Uh, now, unlike most of our other studies, we did not pick this one because it got a lot of headlines. We picked it because, quite frankly, we travel a lot and we wanted to know whether or not melatonin was going to help us sleep. This study actually doesn't seek to answer that question. This isn't about people who uh, are taking melatonin to deal with jet lag. It's specifically about... Melatonin for people with a particular condition called delayed sleep-wake phase disorder. Um, but because of that... Which is not the same thing as insomnia. Right. It's a subset of insomnia. It's a kind of insomnia. A kind of insomnia. But because of that, I don't have any headlines for you. This one, I won't say, generated a ton of headlines. Don, let me, let, let's start with uh, you giving us the, the rundown on hitting the high points on what they did here. Oh, boy. And I will... Oh boy! Some something it had. I think some part right. of the protocol had to do with the creation of a very large number of acronyms. Yeah, that was one of the things we probably can can talk about. But this, I think this this paper wins the it, prize for the most number of opaque acronyms. If there was an it award is, for non-standard acronyms, I would nominate this paper for sure. Hyper acrimonious, hyper acronymous, acronymous. Anyway, we ready. I'm sure we are. Okay, so as Chris said, there are several types of insomnia. These researchers were focused on one subset of a particular kind of insomnia, and that kind of insomnia is insomnia that is associated with a disruption in the internal regulation of melatonin, which is a hormone produced by the pineal gland in the, in the brain and is um, pretty intimately associated with sleepfulness and wakefulness. And so there are this there's a, there's a group of people out there who have a disorder in the secretion of this hormone melatonin which produces a what they call phase shift, which is essentially that you are a night owl. You don't go to sleep at the normal time. So you 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 go to bed late, you get get to sleep late, you wake up late and for a lot of people this can be problematic because it's debilitating, it's, I would it's think. debilitating yeah because you know they're falling asleep and they're not productive and it has all sorts i mean we all have been there to a certain extent when you can't get enough sleep you feel like crap the next day um so what they wanted to do was uh, they, they wanted to find out whether melatonin works for this particular um situation where there is a, a an endogenous disruption of melatonin physiology in essence and that's not the uh, that's not the same as, as Chris referred to, other kinds of, um, of insomnia. And one of the, the other kinds that they refer to is homeostatic sleep drive disturbance. That's not this. And I don't know what that is, okay. but that's not this. Can you repeat that? Homeostatic sleep drive disturbance? Yeah. H? Yeah. So it's, it's somehow... It has, it's <laughs> independent. create another acronym? <laughs> it's independent of melanoma. Yeah. Maybe that's a haiku. 
It could be. Uh, all right. It's, so it's in any the, event, it's an OUA. So, so what these what these authors tried to do is they tried to um, uh, identify a population of these people by advertising and, and getting people in, and then they put them through a series of physiologic tests to establish whether, in fact, they were a member of this group or not. And the focus of this research project is only on those individuals. And the way they determined whether those individuals were a member of this group is that when they brought them to the research site, um, there there was a, uh, a baseline period when they observed when they went to bed, when they went to sleep, and when they woke up. And they they also determined whether the, this melatonin disruption uh, occurs by bringing them in to the laboratory, and they set them in the laboratory for six hours, and they dimmed the lights, and they had they couldn't do any kind of activities. They couldn't have had any kind of coffee. And then they collected saliva every hours until two hours after their anticipated bedtime. And they measured the amount of melatonin, and they found that in the people with this syndrome, the melatonin did not get secreted as you would imagine, around the time of bedtime. And that was the circadian disruption so of these this individuals. Is the delay, the, the sort of the biological basis of the delay in right, it's, onset it, of sleep. It's an, it's, yeah, it's an abnormality in melatonin secretion at the appropriate time. Right. So once they identified these people um, who were all night owls, so the average time that they would get in bed and go to sleep is between midnight and 2 a.m. And they asked them, what would be the optimal time for you to go, uh, to go to bed? And based on the fact that they had jobs and they had things that they had to do, they all said, eh, basically 1030 in the, in the evening. That was their desired bedtime, which D- is the debate. D- <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, it was 1030? I think it was 1030, 1020. Okay. And so what they did is they then... For the subsequent four weeks, they said to these people, okay, we want you to try to go to bed at 1030. We want you to, get, to try to get into bed at 1030 for five out of the seven days each week for the next four weeks. And they then randomized it um, to two groups, double blind, randomized. And in the control group, they simply tried to follow those instructions to um, see if they could phase shift back to a normal sleep-wake cycle, i.e. they tried to get into bed at 10.30 and fall asleep and wake up at a, at a normal time. And that, was the pl- the, and that was the placebo group. So that's really all they but got. They, they got a placebo pill. And they got a placebo pill. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. And then the intervention group was, um, they got the same thing, except that the pill contained five milligrams of melatonin, which they took um, one hour before their defined desired bedtime. And then what they did is they, they, they put a Fitbit on these people and they um, had them um, keep a diary. Not actually a Fitbit, but well, like, like a, a Fitbit, A Fitbit-like right? device. Yeah. 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 An so basically basically what it did was measure motion. And, and by, by looking over time at the motion that these people exhibited, they could infer when, in fact, sleep occurred. You know, there's a little bit of tossing and turning, but then you settle in and you, you sort of fall asleep. Um, and so what they did was they, they then um, determined the outcomes. Um, and there were a whole bunch of different outcomes that they had, a whole bunch of, of, of various scales, um, which they didn't call Z-scores, but I think could probably be termed Z-scores. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, how about that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I did not get it. I'm looking at you going, these aren't Z-scores. What, Z-scores? what are you talking Z- about? Z-scores. That was a joke. That was a joke. So anyway, the main outcome was the um, advanced time in sleep onset. So was their sleep onset actually able to be changed from 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. to 10.30 p.m.? Sleep onset or bedtime? Sleep onset. Bedtime sleep. and sleep onset. They measured both. They measured when did they successfully, on a consistent basis, get into bed, and then when did they fall asleep? And obviously, it wasn't the same instant. One would have to precede the other, usually. Almost always. But what was the, but the primary outcome was... Was it advanced time for sleep onset? Right. How long it took them to actually fall asleep, right. based right. on either on self-report with the diary or by this the actograph widget that like yeah. showed that they were. But if I can just be clear here, or something sleeping. Sleep onset time is not a measure of a change in time. It's the actual hour. Right. The the, the clock time. Right. So what they wanted to look at is the delay from getting into bed to when you successfully fall asleep as no. well as well sleep as when you time, got into bed sleep onset time is simply the hour clock time right. that right, you right, went right, right. to bed right. is it is it 2 a.m or is it 10 30 p.m right right it's not a change in 
that time. But in their analysis, they looked at a change in the sleep onset time. That I agree with right. you. Yeah. It's yeah. TIB. <laughs> time in bed. Time in bed. Right. SOT, sleep onset right. time. And then they also looked at sleep efficiency, which I had to look up. I Total had no idea what, the, what, what sleep efficiency is. And that's really the amount of time that you spend in bed as a denominator and the amount of time that you are spending in bed that you're actually asleep, which is the numerator. Right. And then we've got the, the sleep onset latency time, the sleep efficiency time, the total sleep time, and the wake <laughs> the wake after sleep onset time. Wazo. The Wazo score. Right. right. And then they, Wazo, then they did a Wazo. whole... Then they administered a whole bunch of scales to determine what is the effect on the, your productivity and your feeling of well-being. And then they had an, a clinician evaluate what their assessment was of what are the knock-on effects of, um, you know, of this phase shift in their sleeping. The inclusion criteria were um, individuals 16 to 65 years of age that had to have a daytime commitment. So they couldn't be somebody whose lifestyle right. is simply sitting on the couch and, and, and playing World of Warcraft. Or tanks. Or, or tanks or, or something tanks. like that. So for five or, days. Or, or, or five night, student night security, night security classes guard. a couple of times. Right, right. So yeah. they got to have something that's sort of a regular schedule the next day. They excluded people who were using drugs, who were smoking, who were, had moderate to high caffeine or alcohol use, who had a job that had a night shift, who or who had traveled across two time zones in the last two months. So things that would mess up your circadian rhythms. So they got down to 116 individuals, which was less than their stated sample size, we might add, um, who were randomized, 62 males in the mean age of 29. And so really, the, they were, from in comparison to the baseline, both groups showed improvement in time in bed, hour in bed, as well as sleep latency. But the group that received melatonin had a greater effect than the placebo group. So they both improved, but the melatonin group improved more, more than the placebo group. And again, the placebo group were, How much more? Give, were given a structured set of instructions that they should attempt to go to bed earlier. So it looks like, they brought their mother in, I think, and said, you've got to get to bed earlier. It looks like they, they're, they're, they're sleep onset time latency improved by 29 minutes. The sleep onset time, not the sleep onset so, so latency. The, 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 the decrease in the amount of time they lay there tossing and turning trying to get to sleep, they went to sleep 29 minutes earlier in the melatonin group. Where are you getting 29? I'm getting this I from see 34. table three. Table three is, go to table two. Table two is the, That's the one sleep where it's parameters 34 minutes. and the baseline. Yeah, it's 34, yeah, yeah, yeah. 34 minutes. So but half an hour. They Hang on. But but to be clear, that's the difference in time of going to bed. Uh, sorry, of falling asleep. Right. Right. So that's not that's not a measure of tossing and turning time. That is simply a measure of did you fall asleep at an earlier time right. than you used to, which is a function of also what when time you, you went got to into bed, bed. Right. Which did change. Yes. As well. But the true sleep onset latency shaved off like if you control for all of that time they went to bed they the melatonin people went to went to sleep fell asleep on average 12 minutes earlier right bottom line yeah. it took them 12 minutes less to less fall time. asleep right yes right two more pages of the reader's digest and 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 that's it and that is not, <laughs> but that is not their primary outcome and i think that's one of the issues that I, I, I had with this study, which is that there are page after page, well, not page after page, but there's pages of outcomes here. And we know that when you have lots of outcomes, you're, you're more likely to find false positives because there's so many. Now, they've done nothing deceptive or devious here. We've got all the outcomes, so I'm not, it's not a critique. And they picked a primary outcome, and their primary outcome was, in fact, you know, showed a benefit in terms of 34 minutes. My issue was... That I am not I was not convinced that the outcome, the primary outcome of sleep onset time was the right measure. Now I'm not a sleep researcher. I fully acknowledge that that. And I will say I was I was more convinced that it was a problem before Don and I chatted about this, in which I sort of I sort of start to get why they want to know about sleep onset time. It's because, you know, this is essentially part of the reason they're not going to sleep until later is because there's something going on biologically, they're not producing the hormone. And so they can't fall asleep at earlier times, and this may be helping them. So, okay, so I, I get that. But still, it seems to me 
the tossing and turning time also matters. How long does it take you from the time you get in bed until you fall asleep? And there was a benefit, statistically significant if you care about that, but the difference was 12 minutes. Which seems awfully small potatoes. It, it you know, seems as a bottom line. small. It's not nothing. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's nothing, but it seems small. Right. But that, like, if we're talking about people whose daytime lives are, are crippled in some way because of this disorder, a difference in 12 minutes seems implausibly short to actually have a measurable impact on why you feel sleepy all day long during the day. Yeah. And then why well, you, you could know, not get bed to bed until, you know, two in the morning. It's, it's, and we're not sleep physiologists. And it, right. and it re- and is a very complex that. issue because yep. it's not just a matter of the elapsed time. It's not just a matter of how late. It's really a matter of the quality of the sleep. And then we, you know, they looked at sleep efficiency, which is how, how often are you tossing and turning versus how often are you still? But still, there's all sorts of other levels of sleep that confer restfulness when you wake up. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's an area that we don't claim expertise in. No, no, no. And as I said, that's part of why I, I think I backed off on my criticism of the choice of primary endpoint, because I can, I can see some logic in why you'd want to use it. I just don't think it, it just doesn't strike me as, the, it seems to me that what actually happened was both groups, their time of, of getting into bed got earlier, right? As you'd expect, because they set this. And in both groups, their time of falling asleep got earlier. So it seems to me there was a much bigger effect of just getting into bed earlier than there was on actual time from getting into bed to falling asleep. Mm -hmm. In particular, what concerned me was if you look at SOL, which is... Sleep, Not the other thing. Sleep onset late latency. <laughs> Stands for something else. Sleep onset latency. So the amount of time from getting into bed to falling asleep. The They've got the baseline measure in the placebo group and the melatonin group. And then they've got the on treatment nights in the placebo group and the melatonin group. The sleep onset latency is about 21 minutes in both groups on average at baseline. It goes up in both groups. Mm-hmm. It goes up mm-hmm. in the melatonin group and the placebo group. It just goes up a lot more in the placebo group. It goes up by about 15 minutes in the placebo group and five mi- minutes in the melatonin group. What explains why it's getting worse in both and groups the, and getting in the preferentially group. worse in the, in the placebo group? I yeah. mean, you know, it could be just sort of chance and they were, you know, sort of you entered into the study at a time of, you know, this is sort of, Regression towards the mean, regression mm-hmm. back to poor sleeping behaviors. Mm-hmm. Or something to do Somehow, with the change in the bedtime that had been imposed by the study protocol. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a com- compensatory, yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe, I, I, no, no. In fact, maybe that is the answer. Maybe it's that by going to bed earlier, their sleep onset latency is going to be longer because it wasn't the time that they were actually biologically normally really tired. So, fair enough, maybe that explains mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And so, but why does the, why does it get worse from, Baseline, I guess that's it. No, I guess I, I take it back. That makes sense. That mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Maybe that is the reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's that because you're shifting the bedtime back, you are making it harder to sleep, so you would expect that to go up, but you're reducing it in the melatonin. The, my point here is, in terms of sleep onset latency, things aren't getting better, but relative to what might happen if you shift your bedtime, maybe it does. Mm-hmm. So Because you're habituated to a later bedtime, yeah. so you're just sort of forcing the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, So... Maybe that's some evidence. Any any other issues? Yeah, Anyone? I had another issue. Go ahead. Um, two two issues actually. They they claim that um, they obtained melatonin from a manufacturer, which I looked up. Where? Where? Where is the manufacturer? Did you notice? In Australia. No, it's not in Australia. It's right here in Sudbury, Massachusetts. Oh, that's right. That's right. Really? Yeah, it is. Right it down is. the road. Yeah. Sleepy Sudbury. We can and go so, to his name. So <laughs> in any event, what? what <laughs> What's their mascot? It's the Dormouse. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. So in any event, um, they make a big deal out of the, the fact that they've reached out to a, a, a manufacturer that guaranteed the purity of it. And mm-hmm. I went to the website and looked at this manufacturer's website, and they, they, they extol, they, they claim that they create these, these substances. And melatonin is one of a whole bunch of dietary supplements um, that are highly purified, and they, 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 they explain how important it is that it be highly purified, but they provide no information. And, you know, I think it's a really, really important issue that we need to know whether, in fact, melatonin 
in the in the dosage that were given to these people was quality controlled mm -hmm. because these dietary supplements in particular melatonin and they actually refer to it in the discussion section that we need to be careful because because the pills that are bought in these uh, in supplement stores is notoriously variable in terms of the amount of melatonin that's or even in it. Just at CVS when you get the or melatonin even CVS, pills, yeah. you know what it's, it is. It's not a drug, so it's not it's not you know subject to you know good pharmaceutical manufacturing practices. So I I don't feel confident that See, I know how much melatonin were in these pills that were administered by these people. And as a corollary, I, it makes me uncomfortable if people are to infer from the results of this study that melatonin is in fact a good thing for them, and they go to you know, GMC or what, or CVS, and they take melatonin off the shelf. They have no idea how much melatonin is in there. Are you worried it's they're getting regulated? Are you worried they're getting too much or not enough? Well, either, either. It's just the purity and the and the concentration in these pills is highly unregulated. So but we if just don't getting, know. If they're getting not enough, that would bias towards the null here. Right. That would suggest if they're getting too much, I don't know what that means because I don't know what the implications are of getting. Well, there's a bunch of adverse effects that that they that they sought hmm. that were that were there to a minimal extent. They were pretty mm -hmm. minimal. Yeah, what was they the, were. What was the animal source of the melatonin? Did it? Say? They didn't say. Uh -huh. They, they probably, didn't say. Yeah. Um, can I raise a couple of issues, or you want to say more about the melatonin? Oh, and the other one was that there that they had a, they had a very long section on competing interests. Go ahead. Surprisingly long. Surprisingly long. I did, and, I didn't you know, and, and in part, that you know, some of the researchers had done work and been paid for work and speaking engagements for that manufacturing organization and some of the other um, medicines that they made. Now, you know, it, it's easy to cast stones and say that, you know, yeah. that if you, if you receive money for speaking engagements and something that you are an expert in, and I think that these people clearly are experts in, you know, sleep, sleep physiology, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I agree. And but but there there were a surprising number of organizations and companies that made lights, that made sleep aids, that made you know manufactured pills and melatonin that these people had had worked for and gotten gotten compensation from to raise kind of a question. But that's what competing interest statements are all about. Yeah, and you could I mean you could sort of say on the on the flip side of that, you know, they're being totally transparent, right. and and you know some people are not totally transparent, and there's sort of a at least we're getting it all out, and we can use that as information to, to judge a study. And this mm -hmm. is the best solution, I think, for that yeah, problem. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but, you know, it, 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 that being said, you know, we, we still have to, you know, make note of the fact that, you know, they have received money from the manufacturer of the melatonin. Sure. And from this actigraphy watch device, this mm -hmm. Fitbit thing, is also one of the uh, companies that has funded them. So they're using the product and um, the technology for measuring the impact of the product. I, I don't disagree with anything you just said, but I mean, we, we, we do studies in which we get money. We don't get money. We get, we get donations from, uh, of drugs for the study. So our pneumonia trials, we'll get the, 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 the amoxicillin donated. I don't, sure, is but it's a generic a, drug. I mean, there's no profit in amoxicillin. No, but we're getting it for free. From, so there is a contribution from the, the, the maker is there any reason to think that that's influencing our results? We're no, not in no. the same way. I mean, I think, you know, does, does, does using the Fitbit, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm too worried about that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, just a note. Um, okay. I have two things that I wanted to raise. The first one was the sample size. So I think it's worth noting that this was a small study. Um, 116 ran patients randomized. So 58 and 58, so not a large number. They benefit from the fact that they have this sort of pre-post. Uh, they have two observations per person, and that helps you in terms of your power, essentially controlling for a lot of things, uh, and you're getting these two measurements. But still, whenever I see a study of, of 58 and 58, like that's not enough to convince me. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting. I'm not disparaging. What, what is interesting to me, though, is they didn't actually reach the study sample size that they were powered the study on. They didn't, you know, for, for cost reasons, they weren't able to, to recruit as many subjects as they needed. That's reasonable. But normally what happens is when you are underpowered in a study, the, you find significant effects. Typically, they are overestimates, not mm -hmm. underestimates. That's right. Uh, in this case, the estimates were actually, if I understood correctly, smaller than what they powered it on, and yet they still found benefits. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if it's a big deal or not, but I just pointed out eh, something, that, something to note. What, what bothers me, though, a little bit is their primary outcome, table two, is not an analysis of uh, every observation that they have on patients from nights on which 
uh, they were in the study. They limited Table 2, their primary analysis, to nights on which they actually took the melatonin. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. on nights, but, all uh, nights. Uh, so this is uh, not protocol Don and I analysis. disagree on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, I, see, see, to me... They baked that in from the beginning. That, that was th- this was a pragmatic trial. They structured it in such a way that everybody, placebo and intervention, were or, were told to take the pill five days That's a week. Th- those nights, the day after which you had a commitment, and therefore you needed to get to sleep, and leave the weekends to party. So you don't, you know, you can stay up late, and you don't need to take the melatonin at exactly the same time. So to me, it's it's more realistic of the real world. I, I, so I do, I don't agree. I mean, I don't disagree entirely, but. Just because it's a pragmatic trial doesn't mean we don't analyze the data on those days. Mm-hmm. It's just we have a pragmatic structure. Let, let me just jump in here, Chris, before you get in. The, the, the reason I say this is if it was just you know everybody following this protocol of five days on, two days off, that would be one thing. But they specifically say the total number of nights for which patients complied with the treatment protocol, capsule taken and bedtime instructed, did not differ between groups. Exactly the same between the groups. Then they give you the numbers, 536 versus 614 nights. I disagree that those are not different. Mm. Those are different. And if, if the reason why you are uh, not taking the, the melatonin relates to sleep, that can bias your results. Interestingly enough, can I read the rest of this? It's 536 versus 614 nights for melatonin and placebo groups, respectively. P is greater than 0.05. <laughs> Okay, so they're the same because P is greater than 0.05. Do I need to get into it or can I just leave it there? No. I, that I, that is, I think that the is listening wrong. audience knows. That is wrong. And to me, 536 versus 614 is a, is a big difference that could lead to some mm-hmm. confounding mm-hmm. that you don't get if you don't do the intention to treat type approach. There are per protocol approaches that you can use that allow you to deal with only the nights when they used it. But they didn't use those approach. They just dropped them out. And I think that's, to me, that's, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Not a, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a major problem, but to me, it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, I, last, I, last word to Chris. I, I, well, I was, I was struck by, um, you know, just how narrowly defined the final analytic sample, you know, the cohort was. You know, yeah. given that they started with, they screened 3,500 and change individuals for the study they excluded 1,826 off the bat who were deemed as low risk. Uh, those were 821 out of the 1,826 were deemed as low risk. They don't really explain very well what that meant, but why they, you know, half the, the individuals were eliminated, uh, you know, immediately. Can I, can I jump in? Why? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, this bothered me, not bothered me, but this, this raised red flags for me at first, not because there would be any bias, but it gets to generalizability. Right, But I think I actually do understand it, which is it was expensive to screen these people, right? They had to come in into a lab. They had to be, you know, go through these expensive procedures. Uh, And so I think they, what they did was they ran this questionnaire first that was supposed to like be a, a, a predictive of whether or not they were likely to be eligible. And so they just, they gave that to a lot of people to get enough people who might be, Good candidates, so I don't. I don't think it's actually as. I, I my end conclusion was it's probably not as bad as it. It kind of seemed at first. I think it's not a bias problem. But the generalizability is a real issue because it, it's, Ma- it's saying that this this study really applies to a, a very 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 small subset of individuals having you know some sort of insomnia. You you one would assume because they advertised for this study in in you know in newspapers and advertisements, and so these thirty five hundred people who who came in came in because they presumably have some sort of sleep disorder and are looking for relief. I think it's an online question, but yeah. Right, but yep. that, so, you know, when we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, answer the question, who is this study, who the results of the study apply to, it does not apply to people with insomnia. It applies to this narrow, narrow, narrow no, subset but I, but I, but I think of that, a particular that, kind of insomnia. But I think I that the author has stated that very much up front, and they focus this from the very beginning on this small subset of people who have insomnia, who have this physiologic abnormality, which is a small subset, and therefore mm-hmm. they had to, you know, a fair number of the people who came in and actually did get tested through this, this expensive process didn't have the entity, so they couldn't have been included. Right, but I, I want I want our listeners to understand that this is not a study of insomnia. This right, is not a, study a panacea of a, for insomnia. Right. This is not a does melatonin work for insomnia. This is not what the study question was. The question right. is, yeah. does melatonin work for this particular, you know, rather rare subtype of insomnia? And the question is, Do, the answer is 
apparently yes, but the magnitude of the benefit is is rather small. Small. But hang on, do we know? Do we know for sure that it's a small subset? Do we know? I well, mean, I think we, you're going based we, off these exclusions. That but, we go from 3,600 to 116. But that doesn't mean those none of those people who got excluded didn't have the condition. It just meant that, that oh, yeah, they were sort of point. using this approach. Yeah. Fair I, point. I don't know that they we could know. Have screened we out a lot of we eligibles. Don't. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I just think we don't. I think what it leads to is un- lack of clarity on the generalizability. But I don't think we know that it's a small subset. The other one that is, this is sort of a, a a quibble more than anything, which has to do with plus medicine, which has this habit of um, that the, the, the authors are supposed to copy edit all their own figures. And they, they made a mistake in their figure. I don't oh, know if you, you picked I this did, up. I didn't. Well, this is the one analysis where they look at the on melatonin days versus the off melatonin days. And if you, if you look at it there, the, the, um, the wake-up time on the off-melatonin days is much later. And that's probably because that's a Saturday morning and people are sleeping late, right? That's that's what I would assume. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, each of these is sep- separated by seven days because they're a week apart, except for the first one, which is nine days off. And they and and the the time the delay the the late wake up on that one day apparently occurs on a Tuesday according to this. Uh, Tuesday. Um, but that's because they the the distance between here and here is nine days, not seven days, and they they actually missed mislabeled their figure. Mm. I don't know what to say about that. Can I? But while we're on the subject, can I just get the last word here and say yeah. I love Plus Medicine as a journal. I hate their tables. Mm. I hate the formatting of the tables. It just looks like I don't know what it looks like. All right, let's move on. So in our second segment, we want to talk about a, a, a paper that came out by uh, John Ioannidis uh, that talks about the field of nutritional epidemiology. So it's an essay. It's not a, it's not a research paper. Um, and this is a subject, nutritional epidemiology, that we've talked about many times on this podcast. And we have struggled to come to con- strong conclusions about a- a- any nutritional factor that was uh, highly... Uh, protective or harmful, uh, and we have struggled been skeptical with the, every single time, and struggled with the with issues of of, of systematic error right. in these studies. Right, um, and and we know in addition, nutritional epidemiology is something that is of great interest to the general public. Uh, studies on nutritional epi get picked up by the media quite readily. Uh, people want to know that you know I can eat all the carbs I want, or I can eat all the fat I want, or I can drink all the coffee I want, uh, and so these this this. A lot of issues um, that get picked up in the media. And fortunately, there are studies that will say that. Despite the fact that we know there is issues of uncontrolled confounding and measurement error. So, Chris, Mm -hmm. since this is a topic you love to get into, can you you give us the gist of what Ioannidis... Argument is on the problems with nutritional epi. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's he's making a rather um, broad indictment, not of the scientists in the field, but of the methodology of the field, which is, as we have discussed so many times, it is incredibly difficult to disentangle things. You're, you, you use this phrase all the time, Matt, that that risk factors party together. They do, um, and I. Um, you know, I think the nutritional epidemiology is, is, is a particularly good example of that. So, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of cultural biases associated with food. So, like, when I go to my grocery store and I go and buy some artichokes, right, and I go up to the cash register, um, when the uh, cash register is someone in their 40s or 50s, they bring up my artichokes. And when it's a teen, as it often is these days, they say, what, what is. is that? Yeah. You know, what is that thing that you're trying to buy? They have not seen an artichoke before. And so like right away, that tells you that there is a bias about food. And, and so you would imagine that the probability of me, my being an artichoke consumer is confounded with my probability of being a quinoa and an arugula consumer. Right, uh-huh. you would think that, um, and it goes on and on and on. So all of these 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 individual nutrients are in fact linked together through these intricate webs of confounding consumer choice. And so when you're studying asparagus, you're never really studying asparagus. You're studying the the you know the biology and the health outcomes of asparagus consumers yep. who are a different kind of people than non-asparagus consumers. And, and that is, is the basic problem. So when you, you know, superimpose that, you've got all the residual bounding and the confounding and these, these links, and you're never really sure what, in fact, you're studying. And on top of that are the inherent limitations of the epidemiologic method in terms of you know, bias and confounding and causality. Then it becomes a real mess. And what he says here is that the field needs radical reform. Because I think his bottom line takeaway from this essay is that we are 
in a tailspin on nutritional research where we publish and publish and publish and publish, and we never really know what, whether what we're saying is true or causal. And yet so often the articles are pitched to the public as if they are true and causal. And it is, you know, it is an overstatement on the part of the author's you know, making making these assertions. But the consequences are not just that we're misleading consumers, but I think we're actually driving the public a bit crazy on this because nobody really knows what to believe. Like when one week it says coffee's bad and the next week it says coffee's good. And, you know, they might actually both be true if we're measuring the, the risks, in the, you know, like coffee prevents cancer, but it, you know, prevent it pr- promotes heart disease. For example, I have no idea if this is true, but the two of them can be washing each other out. Or it could be that neither of them is true, and they're both, you know, we're both looking at confounding, and we just don't know. Yep. I went to Whole Foods the other day, right? And I was thinking about this, and I was also looking out at the parking lot to find my car, right? Yep. And we got back from a holiday a mere three weeks ago, and so the kayak roof rack is still on my car. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I can see my and, car. And what kind of car was it? It's a Subaru, <laughs> a bright blue Subaru. Okay, so there's another bit of like confounding epidemiological information about me. You might, you might want to elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners from Suriname and Togo. So this is a, a trendy car for suburbanite um, middle class, upper middle class folks who like to buy Subaru cars. And eat kale. And eat kale and <laughs> do all sorts of other things. And so I, w- I would be willing to bet a a lot of money that if you did an epidemiologic study looking at the association between cardiovascular disease outcomes and kayak roof racks, that there would be a big association. And the control group could be uh, Ford F-150 trucks. And it is not it is not a causal association. It is a fact that people who have kayak roof racks are of a different demographic. And this is the basic problem, is that the kayak roof rack is a symbol of, of a thousand things that tell you about me. And the same thing with asparagus and artichokes. Okay. And you can't just analyze them in isolation. It is... Okay. Polly. Okay, but 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 to be fair, we don't just analyze them in isolation, right? We don't just simply say I'm going to look at people with no. We, we do complicated regression models, and we pre- we pretend that we have controlled for these things. Chris is getting upset. Uh oh, he does not like this one. I do not like this. Um, no, I, I I don't I don't disagree with the general point. I actually I I think Ionides is 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 quite onto something here, and I'll explain sort of my way of going about this this paper as well but but I do want to say I mean we don't just it's it's we do these complex regression models because we have to do something to try and tease out if we're going to try and tease out one nutrient um, we have to do something to deal with the confounding by all these other things that you're you're dealing with and I'm I'm not here to say that we do a, a good job of it I'm not here to say that but I, I think it's very different we don't just say let's look at roof racks and you know, heart attacks. No, I'm, I'm being polemical, but you, you took my point. But one could do that analysis. Well, one definitely could. I don't know what one would learn other than roof racks or... Nothing. You would learn nothing. That's, that's my point. Done. You would learn nothing. All right, Don, what, what, how did you react to this? Yeah, the other, the other, the other issue I have is that, is that um, we're complex biological systems, and, and there mm-hmm. are... We are human beings are yeah. mammals are and and there are all sorts of redundancies in our system and and we are able to in magical ways through the wonders of physiology take fats and make them into sugars and sugars and make them into you know proteins proteins and vice versa all over the place and you know there are certain critical vitamins certain cofactors which when they are deficient in your diet have really bad side effects but when you get beyond those sorts of the, the, those sorts of extreme cases, it, it's it's a very redundant and self um, self correcting. correcting system, so that so that it's really hard for me to understand how looking at one small part of this very complex redundant system is gonna is gonna really produce an experiment that will have a a predictable and meaningful effect on a particular outcome of interest. So that's that's that that's one thing. The, I mean the other thing is that it is so incredibly compounded or, or, or made more complex by human behavior. Mm. And, and, and just the, the, the profound difficulty in changing behavior enough so that you can follow a diet of some sort, or that you can recall what your diet was from, from, from the past. Both of those things, I think, are incredibly difficult to accomplish, making any kind of empiric experimentation on 
nutrition as a input into a particular outcome highly complex, and I'm just very, very suspicious of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'll say more about that because we disagree on that last point. But 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 generally, I, I agree with most of what you said. There's three points I want to make. Um, following up with what you just said, which is that it's so hard to remember what you ate. It's so hard to so misclassification recall. rampant. We have this measurement error problem, and I think the 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 real problem is not just that we have the measurement error problem, but we have some a problem that is we don't talk enough about, which is what we call correlated error or dependent error structures. Your inability to remember certain foods, misremember certain foods, is correlated. And it's not like you just misremember one. If you misremember one, you're more likely to misremember another. And if those two things are both good for you, you're going to have these correlations in the misclassification that makes it harder and harder to remove. Now, this gets to your point, Chris, about the confounding. It gets harder to remove the confounding effects through regression if we have mismeasured the confounders, mm-hmm. particularly if they're mismeasured in ways that are correlated with the mismeasurement in the exposure that we're interested in, that 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 particular nutrient. And that, I think is the, the the problem that we pay not enough attention to is mm-hmm. that, that both we have a measurement problem, but we also have a potentially a correlated measurement problem. Matt, what, what did you eat for breakfast yesterday? Uh, I believe it was uh, a nice, healthy... Uh, egg McMuffin. Yeah, egg McMuffin. And a, an incredibly uh, healthy shake of some kind. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why. Okay, I was just wondering. So, you, so that's what you think you had for breakfast yesterday? I have no idea what I had. Okay, because I, I was also going to ask you what you ate last week. I couldn't tell you. I can't tell you. I can tell you probably what I had for breakfast because I actually eat probably the same thing every day. So if you asked but me, I, cannot I would tell say you it was a ham and cheese sandwich because that's what I eat every day. Yeah. Right? That's my breakfast. That, yeah. But I'm, I, I don't remember that. Really? I'm deducing that. You eat a ham and cheese sandwich Why for breakfast? Why would you breakfast? eat a ham and cheese sandwich it's for breakfast? That's okay. lunch. That's right. weird. That's what I like for breakfast. Come on, seriously? Yeah. All right. What's wrong with that? Two, <laughs> two, two, two other points. Two other points. Um, the second one that I think Anidis makes, which I think is really interesting, is that he 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 focuses this in part on the size of the effects that we're observing. So he's 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 basically saying if you look at the size of the effects that people are finding in the literature, they're just implausible. The idea that I think what was the example? You the eat hazelnuts. hazelnuts. Eating a couple of hazelnuts will gain you at one point seven years of life. A year of life, and it just it just doesn't sort of make any sense. And in some cases, they were looking at effects that are outweigh the harmful effects of smoking, which just doesn't... It's not possible. It's not possible. So and we're coming so, up with estimates that are on their prima facie impossible. Yeah. And, and that, still we're not like saying, hey, stop, that cannot be true. And if you in fact believe that the misclassification is uh, that we have in, in food studies is non-differential, that it doesn't actually relate to the outcomes, that would suggest on average that we're underestimating effects. They should be even larger. And it just yeah. sort of starts to become a little implausible. And that's a, that's a point that I had never really thought of before. I, I'd certainly thought of the, all the issues around measurement error and confounding. Um, and the last point is, and this is not a point that I need to make, but to me, this is the argument that we need nutritional trials. Yes. We need nutritional trials, which I know, Don, you disagree with. And I say that because we need trials that'll tell us not about, not about a particular nutrient, but about whether we can nudge people to eat in a certain way for any prolonged period of time that might have an impact on their results. It doesn't mean they're going to do it, Don. It doesn't mean that trying to get you to eat in a certain way is, means you're going to do it, but it means if I can influence you to eat healthier and that can have an impact on your life, then we have an intervention that we can actually do. So your mm-hmm. outcome is to, to successfully convince somebody to eat a diet that you think is healthy. No, no. My, my outcome is actually going to be the, the, the heart attack. But do you think that you could really conduct a trial over the course of 15, 25 years? It doesn't that- have to be over 15, 20 years. It can be over five years. As long as the sample size is large enough. Well, as, no, as long but as... You may, I mean, but it may take 25 years for there to be an effect of whatever the nutritional intervention is and heart disease. If that's true, if that's true, then yes, we have a problem. But but what about the the, the, the trial of the, the European, the Mediterranean diet? Mm-hmm. They were able to show benefits, even though not everyone adhered to it, even though it had years. to be retracted and republished, all those things. They were able to show benefits. And I think that's... We need more of that. We're not going to be able to do lifelong trials because... No, obviously. Because not not just because we couldn't do lifelong trials, but because that doesn't lead to any practical advice for interventions. The question is, do moderately sized 
interventions, you know, a five-year intervention of, of trying to encourage people to eat in a certain way have benefits. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what they actually specifically do. It matters whether we can influence their health. Do you mean, do you mean objective physiologic benefits that w- where disease is either uh, prolonged or, or, or delayed or omitted? I do. Because I think that uh, a lot of what this research is about is chronic disease. And chronic disease is something that takes a long time. Even five years, I think, is not, is not very long to develop certain kinds of chronic disease. You know, maybe obesity and diabetes. But in terms of some of the... Some of the heart attack? Heart attacks in, or in, stroke or older mortality. I think it's, hold, hold I think it's I, really difficult. I, I, it, it, it's, it's, it's certainly not easy. I, I, I'll, I'll grant you that. But, you know, in fairness, this is what we do with statin trials and aspirin trials. Yeah. and Coumadin trials. Absolutely. You know? We're looking at a five-year horizon with a very large cohort, but we're looking to see a biological effect of, of uh, you know, a statin drug. And, you know, we can measure that within as little as a year in some cases. So if, if, we're, if we're achieving... Different. Well, is it different? Yes, I mean, I, we're arguing for, for, for diet as medicine. So why should we not assume that you can have the yeah. same time horizon of a clinical trial to show a clinically relevant impact of a diet. Because if it takes 15, 20 years for the diet to have any impact, then it obviously doesn't have a very big impact. We need not worry about it so much. So unless these, I, are, I, these are dietary changes that have a horizon of five years in terms of their impact, then who cares? I, I, think, I think you have to make a distinction in terms of the mechanism. I think that when it comes to aspirin or it comes to something that is going to um, change the physiology of how the body is going to react to a certain, a certain event, then that that's different than changing the diet as a precursor for setting up for a disease process. Mm-hmm. I think you're right about you know about aspirin and stroke and all the rest of that stuff, but I think looking at saturated fats over a five year period in terms of that outcome maybe heavy lift. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Uh, all right, so we'll we'll leave it there. We we clearly disagree on this one, but I think that uh, makes it all the more interesting. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. We're going to highlight some of the uh, things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. I'll look at that weird and wacky stuff that goes on. I said weird and wacky for you, Don. Uh, and as well as the things that are inspirational to us. Who wants to, who wants to take it first? Chris, uh, you want uh, These are the, the abusing and aphasing segment. I, I have I a short know. one. You have a short. Oh, I have a short one too. Let's hear it. I have a short one too. Go. I, my, I can, my, I can go right. for about an hour. I can't. I, <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Maybe I should go first. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because I can leave in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I got this off of um, Twitter, and I, I can't attribute it to anything because it was not signed. It was just something that, that appeared. And I, I want you to try to imagine, in your mind's eye, a two-by-two two table. All right? The title of this is Science Articles, A Guide. It's a two-by-two two table. So the first column at the top says average sentence is easy to understand. Mm. The column to the right of it is average sentence is hard to understand. Now the rows on the left-hand side, first row says subject matter is complex. Second row says subject matter is simple. So what I'm going to do is describe the intersection between those columns and rows. So the first one is average science is easy to understand and the subject matter is complex. Easy to understand, but complex. Average yep. sentence is easy to understand of the article that yeah. is describing the science. Average sentence is easy to understand, and the subject matter is complex. That is great writing. Yeah. All right? I agree. Second one is average sentence is hard to understand. Subject matter is complex. That is typical mm. writing. Yeah, right. That right. would describe third, right. third one is subject matter is simple. The average sentence is easy to understand. So subject matter yep. is simple. Easy, easy. Average... So that is honest writing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then the average sentence is hard to understand and the subject matter is simple. That is probably just b- <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to give us a relative risk and actually populate this with some numbers across <laughs> different de- disciplines. We could determine one, but I love that. Well, that is, That's that is, good. That is, that, is, that is very helpful. I like that. Uh, we should stick that on our walls and yeah, we really like adhere to it. Chris, what do you guys? Uh, all right, so I, I uh, you know, we're, we're heading into uh, the fall semester, and I'm doing my vaccine course, which is all about group work. And I, I'm very curious about the dynamics of group work. And these guys did a really clever uh, experiment on the advantages of, of different kinds of group work versus individual work. And so um, the paper is called How Intermittent Breaks in, in Interaction Improve Collective Intelligence. And this is, again, from PNAS. Lead authors Bernstein, Shore, and Lazar. 
Okay. And so the, the observation is, is that when people work together in groups, they often come to solutions to a, a common complex task more quickly than if they're working in individuals. But that interaction has a price, which is that the sophistication of the answers is often worse than the best answers that individuals working alone would come to. Meaning that as a group, you often achieve premature closure on the answer because there's groupthink because everybody's like mm. now pulled by the first person who's the loudest person, the most influential person in the group to come up with a plausible answer, even though that answer might not actually be the best answer. Mm. And so then the, the group sort of terminates and, you know, drives to this slightly more mediocre, but acceptable response. Whereas the individuals lack that, that benefit of the interaction, but in individually, if you like look at the, the, the collective outputs of individuals, you actually find that they, uh, they may come up with far better answers, even though on average, each one of them is more likely to fail. Mm. So there's a, there's a, there's a price. And so what they said is like, can you study this and prove it empirically rather than this just being sort of like a general observation? Um, and is there a way of tweaking the social interaction model so that you gain the benefits of individual work and also without the penalties of collectivism? That was the question they were asking. And so they set up this, this study using a, um, an experimental model called the traveling salesperson problem, the TSP, the traveling salesperson problem. And this is a, a video game where the, each individual is shown a screen with 25 cities on a map. And the task is to find your way from every single city on the map in the shortest distance possible. Okay, and mm -hmm. it is very hard to do. So this this is a, a task that, even with you know seventeen, twenty, thirty trials, people will not come up with it. And there is a perfect solution, and then there's everything that is not quite so perfect. And so the individuals in the study were randomized to three groups, and each group consisted of a triad of three individuals. One triad was um, allowed to work collectively, meaning that everybody in the group saw what everyone else was doing at all times and was basically sharing their information. The second group was an intermittent contact group where they, you know, they did these 17 trials. Um, and every third trial, they were allowed to look at each other's work and share their work. But on the you know, the numbers two and three, or the one, one and two, two, and numbers one and two, they worked individually. And so here you're sort of harvesting hypothetically the impact of individual work and creativity, and then you bring them together and you, and to achieve that group synergy. And then the third group was no contact at all, and they just had to work alone. And so what they found, which was really cool, was that the intermittent um, contact group and the no contact group were both superior to the continuous contact group in their ability to find the best solution. Wow. So group okay. work is bad. The group, well, they, yes, but the, the full contact group, uh, outcompeted in terms of having the average best solution. And so then you do see that the average of the group tends to be better with the full no, contact so, group. So, so in other words, because the, the individual groups are, some people are getting the best answer, some people are not getting even close. Right. So you average that together, they're... They get a, a pretty good answer. They're not doing well. They still, if they go with the one person, they'll find the best answer. But the ones, the groups that did the best were the intermittent groups, mm. where they, they actually get the benefits of both worlds. And so I was thinking about this as like, how do we apply this in pedagogy with our group work? How do we like get students to intermittently behave as independent units, which is basically the brainstorming part of a, of a task solution, right? Where you, you, you say, you, everybody go off by yourself and see if you can solve the problem by yourself and then we're gonna come together and we're gonna, we're gonna compare notes. And so that model is, is much more powerful than let, let's put everyone together in a group and say solve the problem because what you get then is quick early termination towards a mediocre solution. Mm. And I cool. thought this was a really so, interesting and empirical so, insight into human behavior. Okay. Regression to mediocrity. Exactly. Okay, so in other words, so we should... So there's a benefit of group, but it is, it is not the panacea. So from now on, we should each record our segments of the podcast alone, come back together for a few minutes, and then go back alone again? Is that what you're we saying? We can't here? argue against science, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right. Uh, so I get the last one. Mine is very short. I got this off of Twitter, but it does speak to the problem. So I, um, graduate school days, had to do a thesis. Did you guys, you guys both have... In addition to your medical degrees, you both have uh, master's degrees. Did you have to do a thesis? No. Oh, I, yes, I did, actually. Yes. Yes. What did you do with your thesis when you were done with it? I put it in a drawer. Done? Yeah, me too. No, so no one has ever read it or seen it or... 
Not even my mom. It's the age-old problem of what happens to those things right. and they go nowhere. Right. So this was, a, uh, I thought, a, a really nice solution to that problem. This came off of Twitter. Um, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say the name of the person on Twitter or not, but um, there is a person on Twitter. Was it our president? No, it was not. It was a, a woman on Twitter who took her thesis and she had the entire thing printed on a scarf. That what? she can now wear. That? Oh God! Which so I think really? is fantastic. Just was this maybe, a PhD thesis? I don't know if it was PhD or master's, but I just thought it was like she can now wear her thesis <laughs> around, and it isn't going to sit in a drawer like every other master's thesis probably does, and so many probably PhDs too. I just thought it was a brilliant. So those are really small letters. Really small letters. <laughs> what I, I want to know is, it was, is was this an infinity scarf? I. <laughs> Do not know the answer to that question. All right, well. Is there no end? Thank you for sticking that out. Yeah, for, for some things, there is no end. That is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at, at ProfMatFox or you can tweet Chris at, at ID.Gill or you can tweet Don at, at DThea1. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We would like to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning here at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. Ham and cheese for breakfast. I know. <laughs>